Dave and I are having a fight. He wants me to wear one of those boom mics, and I don't want to look like a tele-evangelist, so I'm still, <laughs> I'm still fighting for this one. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just the whole thing, you know, the mic, boom, or I just can't do it. This week, just this week, watching the news, uh, North Korea launched another missile. This one went 2,500 miles over Japan. Now, now puts their missile range within U.S. territories. Experts are now saying that the next thing North Korea will do is test a nuclear warhead. Uh, how about uh, in other news? Uh, Russia is in eastern Ukraine, has just annexed a large portion of that. Uh, Putin has threatened to use nuclear uh, bombs if necessary. Uh, Biden has announced that this is the closest thing we've come to Armageddon since the C Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, Biden has promised that he's going to defend NATO territory, and Ukraine is trying to fast-track their membership into NATO. Um, because of this nuclear threat, the United States has just purchased $290 million worth of anti-radiation pills. Nothing to worry about here. <laughs> China, in the meantime, is threatening to retake Taiwan. The U.S. has had, through the years, a policy of vague ambiguity about what we would do to defend Taiwan. But the president has given assurance that should China invade Taiwan, the United States will come to its defense. That would mean war with China. In the meantime, Iran has violated its nuclear uh, limitation agreement. They are moving forward to the development of a nuclear uh, warhead. They now have 3,900 kilograms of enriched uranium. That's 19 times the amount that they agreed to in the, in the 2015 nuclear um, agreement. Wednesday, this just keeps getting better, doesn't it? Wednesday, OPEC decided they were going to reduce oil production by 2 million barrels per day. Uh, Biden has decided he's going to release more uh, res of the oil reserves. That puts the oil reserves somewhere around 420 million barrels, which is about half of the height that it has been to try to keep prices down. We are being told regularly not to get alarmed. Inflation is only 8.6%, especially if you exclude things that cost money, like food and, and energy. All this causes us to feel a sense of nervousness and a, a sense of uneasiness. It's, it's disconcerting at best. It's, it's frightening. It's possibly even terrifying. You know, there's, there's lack of peace in the world. There's lack of peace in our country. There's Lack, consequently, a, a serious lack of peace in our own heart. The uh, political pundits today tell us, don't worry about it, don't be alarmed, everything's okay, don't panic. Kind of reminds me, remember that famous speech from uh, Neville Chamberlain, September 30th, 1938, he returns back from Berlin, gets off the plane, he's waving this piece of paper. He's got this peace agreement with Hitler. Hitler promises all he wants is a Sudetenland, nothing more is going to happen. Very famous picture because um, Chamberlain says, we have achieved peace in our time. Actually, I think he probably said we have achieved peace for our time because he was misquoting Benjamin Disraeli from a 1878 similar agreement with the Germans. We have achieved peace in our time. Kind of reminds you, too, of when Jeremiah was warning the people of Israel God's judgment that was coming upon it, and yet 
the pundits of the day were saying, nah, everything's okay. God's not going to do anything. God's on our side. Jeremiah 6.14, Jeremiah warns them. He says, they have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there's no peace. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to uh, Revelation, excuse me, Romans chapter 5. And Dave, you caught me again. <laughs> okay, I have a confession to make. I frequently say revelations, and I blame Dave for saying it when actually he's the one that corrects me all the time. It's, it, <laughs> but, but don't go there. We'll go to Romans instead, which does end with an S, Romans. Romans 5. You know, with all this uncertainty in the world, with all this uh, catastrophe about ready to happen, how do we find peace? How do we find meaningful, lasting, enduring peace? Is it fair to say that we live in an unsettling time? I mean, certainly from a worldly standpoint, um, if you were to just look at the news only, it, it, we would agree it's an unsettling time. But we as Christians have one other factor to consider, and that is that we believe in a sovereign God, a God who is ruling over not only creation but over history, a God who's at, at work. And so, yes, times can seem unsettling, and peace and contentment seem to be something that's highly elusive and vanishing, um, not just with financial woes or weather woes like it's been going on in Florida last week. You know, I didn't mention that. That's because it was a week earlier. I said this, this week. This, this is the news this week. Um, we can, even if there were, it was great weather, and even if there were no threat of earthquakes or political disturbance or an invasion or threat of military conflict, even if we had all those, would you say we would achieve peace? Would there be would you say, well, that's perfect. That's what we long for. That would be the perfect thing if there was no threat like that. I think we need to challenge, we need to challenge that assumption because that kind of peace is only temporary. And all of those things that we say disturb our peace, those things are only temporary as well. They're important. I mean, they're real things, but they're, they're temporary things. And even if there were no financial worries, no sickness, and no military threat, um, no calamities between nations. The only time that we have peace assured to us is in the book of Revelation. How about that, Dave? Where towards the end of the book of Revelation, we're, we're told that there will be financial, international, natural peace, and it's only then that we're going to find a peace that is deep and satisfying to our soul. So the reality is that you can have wonderful weather, and wonderful relationships and wonderful financial security um, without ever finding real peace. Many of us lived through the 60s, one of the most tumultuous times in our nation's history. Um, we remember the, the cries for peace, the, the peace sign, and, and we remember everyone was, was calling out for peace. And, most of the time, they meant they didn't want to have a war in Vietnam. But I think, too, the, the, the others considered peace to be um, freedom from authority. We were trying to break out from the authority of other people. And so with all the protests and speeches and changes that took place, and all that we said we were pursuing peace, we did not achieve meaningful, lasting peace. 
And the reason for that is that this conflict, this lack of peace has gone on since the fall from, from Eden when mankind was ejected from the garden that there would be no peace until there was peace with God. And you can have all kinds of manufactured bumper stickers and slogans and peace signs, but unless you come first to peace with God, you're not going to have peace. It doesn't, in spite of natural disasters or internal conflicts or slumping economies, until we have peace with God, we can't have peace. The good news, the gospel, is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the text that's before you today. And peace doesn't come because we worked out some agreement with God. We, we, peace comes because God has provided it to us through a great cost. It, and it affects the way we live our lives now, and it affects the way we perceive our, our future. So we have been building this case through the last four chapters of Roman, but especially this last chapter four, and what is the theme? The theme has been that we have justification through faith alone in Christ alone, that righteousness is not imputed to us because of, of the things we do, our, our works, our heritage, our, our rituals, our, our adherence to the law. This righteousness needs to come to us as an alien righteousness or righteousness that somebody else lends to us or imputes to us. And this righteousness comes to us only through faith. It's offered to us, and we simply say, I believe that. I accept that. That's the faith that, that I extend. And if there's any justification, it can come through any other source. It's not the, it's not the justification which God has provided. It has to come by grace alone. Otherwise, it would be contaminated by human interaction. We contribute nothing to salvation except our sin, which makes it necessary. And that brings us to our text today, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first word we run into is therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, you should ask what it's there for. Um, Paul's therefores are therefore a reason. So he, he's, he's making a transition between what he's just said in the last four chapters of Romans and he's, and, he's, and he's putting it in juxtaposition to what he's about to say. And Dr. Barnhouse says, this therefore is the stone rolled away from the tomb of Christ declaring all the blessings that come to us by the living Savior. You can see that, can't you? Because the last words where we left off in, in chapter four is that Jesus was raised for our justification. He was raised back to life for the purpose of our justification. Now, the first words of chapter 5 are, therefore, we have been justified. We have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, therefore, we are declared righteous by Jesus or through Jesus. We, and we are justified simply because we believed, we accepted that. We said, God speaks the truth. God does what is true. God fulfills his promise. I believe that. That's the faith that, that we extend. The faith that says, I, in, in, in the end, when I stand before God and he asks me, why should I allow, allow you into my presence? The only answer we will have at that time is, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. He will stand in for me. He has made me righteous. He has paid for my sin. I'm trusting only in Jesus. 
He says, therefore, having been justified. It is a past action, not something we're looking forward to. It is a past tense verb. Um, it's, it, it's officially the aorist passive, but it means that God has made it so when he declared us to be righteous um, through Christ Jesus, having been justified. It's already an accomplished work. And Paul made that clear in uh, chapter 3, verse 24. Um, through the redemption, uh, I can't get started. Through the redemption, which is, which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly. Uh, the word, next word I'm looking for is propitiation. I, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't get the flow going. I can't get started here. But the point was that God provides propitiation. Remember that word? It means that God is satisfied. His anger has been appeased. The price has been paid and he's accepted it. God's satisfied. Propitiation has been made through the blood of Jesus Christ, which we then receive through faith. So it's a justification then is a, a definite legal act which God has performed. He's, he is therefore both the one who is just and the justifier. He can't just simply be forgiving. He can't just say, you made a mistake, ah, don't worry about it. He can't just say, I forgive you, because that would not be just. He has to be just and the justifier. He's just because a price has been paid. Our sins have been separated from the sinner and been placed on someone else. Somebody has paid the price in full, and so he is just to say the price has been paid. He is the justifier because he's the one who did it. The transgression has been paid for, and so we are declared to be just. And so we, all of mankind, but specifically we, who were once enemies of God, now come to God and call him Father. And the law, which once condemned us as lawbreaker, now we gladly embrace because it leads us to live lives that please the Father and bring Him glory. Back to verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to make a distinction here between peace with God, which is what our text is about, and the peace of God, which is another matter altogether. So we're very familiar with the concept of the peace of God. If you look back to um, Philippians 4, or 6, and 7, which talks about the peace of God. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, um, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So in those two verses, you have the peace of God of God. I'm not talking here about the peace of God, though that's something we all desperately want. And those are very comforting verses in times of trouble in our life. You know, maybe, maybe you lost a job and you're wondering how you're going to support your family or somebody in your family is uh, sick. Uh, maybe you've lost someone who's close to you in, in death and you desperately need to know, to sense, to feel, uh, to understand the peace of God, that peace which transcends all understanding. And I'm here to tell you, I've counseled many people in times of crisis in their life and told them about this peace of God which transcends all understanding. And they will tell me, you know, in, in counseling, they have, they have known that. They've experienced that peace of God. Um, but that's not the peace 
that we're talking about in our text here in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He's not referring to the peace of God. He's referring to peace with God. And the idea here is that we have been at war with God, and he is at war with us. When we are sinners, he is not pleased with us. We are the object of what? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God. And so we've built this case that God is wrathful because of his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. He is wrathful towards sin. He is not at peace with the sinner. He's at war with the sinner. The wrath of God is, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth in their wickedness. So we've been talking about that war that we are at war with God. We do not want God to tell us how to live our lives. We do not want God to establish his authority over us or to outline for us the way we're supposed to live our lives. We're at war with God. We don't want to think about God. We certainly do not want to submit to, to God. And God is at war with us because he cannot tolerate sin. And we will say, well, I'm sure that's true of other people. They irritate God with their sin but not so much me. You know, God and I have this understanding. I mess up a little bit. He's okay with that. If God was just okay with that and it was easy for him to just say, yeah, I'm all right, forget, because, you know, it's my job to forgive people, then why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why did God have to spend his wrath against him if God is just so forgiving he winks at sin? And that's the point that we've been building at especially in the fourth chapter of Romans. But where does that lead? It leads to what we so desperately need is more than the peace of God, we need peace with God because we have been at warfare and God now has removed the, the, the conflict, the cause of the conflict, so that from God's side, he is at peace with us because he's satisfied that the enmity has ended between us since Christ has paid it all. He's satisfied. Nothing more is required. And we, on our side, have received peace because we believed God. I don't mean believed in God. We believe God. God said something. He gave his word. I believe God's true for his word. God made promises. He's sovereign. I think he can fulfill the promises that he made. That's believing God. Many people want to have the peace of God or something like it when they're in difficult circumstances. And what they mean is they want to have the kind of peace that makes them tranquil in, in tough situation, makes them calm under fire, always in control. Other people just want God's abundant blessings in their life. And if God is the source of all good things, and he is, we can only have those kind of experiences. We can only have the peace of God if we first entered into a right relationship with him, if we ended the animosity between us. We can only experience the peace of God once we have experienced peace with God. And that's the point that, that Paul is trying to make for us here. And we'll, we're never going to know the peace of God until we know the peace with God. We're never going to be able to understand how we can stand up under the trials of life until we understand how we can stand up to the demands of the law. 
That's why when we present the gospel, you don't start with grace, you start with guilt. You start with your need to be forgiven, your, your animosity towards God. You know, honestly, most people don't consider themselves to be God's enemies, and they would find that harsh and unkind and judgmental for you to even suggest that. Because they don't feel any conscious animosity towards God. You know, they don't feel like they're working against Him. They don't, they don't feel like they have a bone to pick. They're not trying to contradict His Word. They, they consider themselves, at worst, to be neutral towards God. You know, they, don't, they don't think anything about Him at all. They, the, the reality is, however, the Bible says there is, so, there is no such neutrality available. If you are not coming to God by saving grace, you remain His enemy. You remain hostile towards God, Romans 8, 7. Well, anyway, let's back up to verse 1. <coughs> Therefore, since we, have been, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith to His grace in which we now stand. This is an interesting concept, this whole idea of access. And the idea is before you did not have access to God. You could not approach God. The sinner does not have freedom to the throne room of God. And there's a picture of this back in the story of Esther. Remember, remember Esther in the Old Testament? So as, when, uh, when um, Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem, he carts away all of the skilled craftsmen, all of, a majority of the people of Jerusalem, and he imports them as slaves and laborers to uh, Persia. In Esther's time, um, the, the king of Persia was Xerxes, and his capital city was Susa. Uh, Xerxes needed a bride to replace the deposed queen Vashti, and this bride, long story short, Esther becomes his bride. Uh, Esther is taken, she is, uh, uh, she's under the care of her uncle and cousin Mordecai, so she's, uh, she's what's the word I'm looking for? She, I'm sorry, I just have a brain lesion in. Anyway, Esther's taken from Mordecai's home, she doesn't have parents of her own, and she's taken to live in, in the palace, at Xerxes' palace there. And the same palace is the evil Haman, dun, 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 the snidely whiplash of the story. And Haman hates the Jews, and he plots this, this uh, he hatches this plot against the Jews and has Xerxes unwittingly sign this decree that would mean death for all, all of the Jews. So Mordecai uh, learns of this plot, and he goes to Esther telling her about this plot, saying that Esther needs to go to the king and tell him what this was, what this was all about and do whatever she can to prevent it. Alas, dun, 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 dun. alas, she cannot go before the king because there is a law of the Persians that no one can come into the king's throne room unbidden, and if they show up, they will be immediately executed unless... The king holds out the golden scepter, which, which grants them grace so that they don't get executed at the spot. And so she, she's reluctant to go into the, the throne room of the king because even she will face certain death if she comes in unbidden. And then probably you know, the whole theme of the book of Esther 
it rests on this verse. Mordecai comes to her and says, you have been set up by God for this time. You are the person for this time, for a time such as this. That's the whole theme, a time such as this of the book of Esther. And so he says, nobody else can intervene. You, you have to be the one. You have to do it. Esther agrees. She's going to go see the king. She spends the next three days praying and fasting. She tells Mordecai to tell all of the other Jews to do the same. They pray and fast. And then Esther puts on her royal gown, and she steps into the throne room, fully expecting at that moment to get her head chopped off. And the king extends grace to her, extending the golden scepter. He sees her in her beauty, and, and he, he grants her her life. And so Esther has access to the king. The whole point of this is not everybody has access to the king. Most people don't have access to the king. And so Paul is working this point here to talk about that we have access to the king because through Christ we have been justified. We, we, we now have access to God. Through grace we can come into his presence. The author of Hebrews put it this way. He says, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the whole, most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled and cleansed um, from, a, from a guilty conscience. Remember, I mean, I've told this to you before. In the, in the Jewish temple and the court complex around the temple, if you were a Gentile, and you are, and you were to come into the Jewish temple during the, the time of Christ, you could come into the outer courtyard, the courtyard of the Gentiles, and then you would immediately be faced with this barrier, a wall. And it says, no one, no Gentile may go past this, uh, this point at, at uh, threat of death. And they meant it. In fact, the Romans let them do it. If you passed from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the Jews, uh, the Romans would allow the Jews to, to kill you, execute you. If you happen to be a Jewish woman, well, actually, if you happen to be Jewish at all, you could go on to the next courtroom, the courtroom, the court, uh, the court of the women. I don't mean courtroom. Excuse me for saying that. The court of the women. And immediately, another barrier, another wall presented itself. If you were a woman Jew, that's as far as you could come. The men could go into the court of the Jews, but they, then another wall, and no further could they come in. The priests could come into the temple complex itself, and beyond this holy place where only the priests could go, and only when they were serving at the time, was the holy of holies, and it was separated from the holy place by a huge, heavy curtain. And the only one guy could go in there only one day of year, and it had to be only the high priest, only after he had offered sacrifice for himself and his family and his people, and then he would carry the fresh sacrifice into the holy of holies to sprinkle it on the ark, the mercy seat, and we've talked about that before. All of these walls and signs and curtains demonstrated that access was limited even to the chosen people of God. You could only come this far. Access to God was limited. And what does Paul say? Paul says that we now have this, we are, we are encouraged to come into the presence of God, drawing near to this holy of holy place. Well, what happened? Well, do you remember in, when Jesus dies? He's, he's on the cross. Uh, Matthew, 
27:51, Jesus is on the cross, and when he dies, the, t- the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the holy place was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying God had torn apart this last barrier, which kept sinful man away from the holy presence of God. So all of this elaborate system that, that was placed forward, which limited access to God, is now torn down. And now we have this unimaginable freedom that we take so lightly and so carelessly that we can come directly into the presence of God. And we need no mediator, no high priest, no saint. We can come directly into the presence of God. And he, he hears our, our prayers. And not only can we come into his presence, but we are encouraged to do that. So our justification is not just about forgiveness. And it's not just about this imputation of righteousness that we have from Christ. It's not just about our escaping judgment. It includes all of that. But our justification also means we have peace with God and we have access to God. We can come right into his presence. We can come into his presence boldly, but I want to caution you, we must never come into his presence arrogantly. I've been to churches that have been part of a church which tells, told us because of our relationship to God as his, as his children, we are princes and princesses, and so we can boldly storm the throne room of God. So there's a big difference between boldly coming before God because we have been granted access into the king's room and this arrogance which treats Jesus as if he's your pal or your best friend. If Jesus were to walk in the room right now, we would all fall down on our faces in, in, in the presence of such majesty and such holiness and such power. So we must never, we must never come into God's presence with arrogance but with the assurity that we are welcome and invited, and he will hold out the scepter of grace to us. Anyway, back to our text. Where are we? Verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This hope of the glory of God is a reference to what will be ours when we are finally uh, before him in his presence. It's parallel to... Romans 8.30, which says, And those he has predestined, he has called. And those that he has called, he has justified. And those that he has justified, he also has glorified. So justification ultimately and inevitably leads to glorification. So we say we, we will be glorified when we stand in his presence. All of the sin nature is left behind and we are glorified in his presence. So we have this, we have peace, we have access, and we have hope of this one day being glorified, having this glory of God um, to assure us that, that's, that his purposes will never be frustrated. In the Bible, when we talk about hope, we don't mean something that you wish for, that you would like to happen. We're talking about something which we assuredly know but don't yet possess. It's like faith. It's something we have with surety, certainty, but it is something we, unlike faith, it is something we do not yet possess. Hence, that's the word um, hope. It 
refers to a certainty um, the, though we do not possess it. And how do we have that certainty? Because God has told us so. And because God doesn't lie. And that's all part of belief and faith. You believe God doesn't lie. He tells the truth. Um, we rejoice in this hope. Again, it's not just taking a deep breath as if you're hoping things turn out all right. It's this assurance that God is going to do what he says he will do. That's the hope of glory that we look forward to. Verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us or put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This is really interesting here because he, he, he talks about the suffering in the life of the Christian and that being part of the glory of God. If you're a new Christian, or if you're not a Christian, suffering is something that you want to avoid at all costs. In fact, that's the question that's frequently put before us. If you serve a loving God, why does he allow suffering in the world? The suffering in the life of the Christian can happen for a number of reasons. Obviously, it can happen because God is acting in some corrective manner. You know, you, you've done something wrong and God's correcting you and you suffer for that. I want to pose a different prospect to you, and that is sometimes suffering happens for the glory of God. If God were to ask you to suffer something for him, and, and you were assured that in the process of suffering that God would be glorified, would you count that too great for God to ask you to suffer? You know, what if? God is glorified through your struggle of cancer. Would you say it's unfair and God should not ask that of me? Remember the story where Jesus is hot-putting it through the temple district and they're entering one of the gates. Where are we? John 9. At any rate, they meet the guy who's born blind. His disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned that this man should be born blind. Jesus said, neither him nor his parents, but this is for the glory of God. Remember that? Okay, if that's true, I'm assuming Jesus was talking the truth. Assuming Jesus was speaking the truth, this guy has suffered blindness his whole life, not because of a one-to-one -one correlation, his sin or his parents' sin. It's not that somebody screwed up, and it's not just an accident of nature. According to Jesus, this guy has been suffering blindness his whole life for the express purpose of glorifying God. And Jesus knows he's about ready to heal this man, and of course he does, and God is glorified. My point is, sometimes we suffer that God would receive glory. And sometimes, if we will let him, God does receive glory through our suffering. That's really hard to believe. It's really hard to understand, and particularly for non-Christians. But it's, it's difficult, especially for, for us, um, because we wonder if God is good and he's loving and he loves me and he cares for me and he wants good things to happen to me, why does he let me suffer? Could it be he does so because through it, he will be glorified. And we've pounded this point down hard before. What is the chief end of man? 
to love God and glorify Him. If that's true, and if you believe it, and I hope you do, if our chief purpose is to glorify God, is it too much that God should ask us to glorify Him through suffering, or whatever means He chooses to do so? And if you have been praying for somebody you love who's not a Christian, is it inappropriate for you to say, God, use whatever means possible and necessary, including difficulty and hardship and pain, in order to bring them to the cross? Would you say that's unfair? No, you would ask whatever it takes. God, do whatever it takes that that friend, brother, daughter, son, husband would ultimately bow their knee before you and stand with us in glory. You, you see where I'm going with that? Well, next he tells us the purpose or the outcome of, of suffering. He says the first consequence, outcome of suffering, back to verse 2, is perseverance. Perseverance. And perseverance just simply means that you're going to tough it out in difficult circumstances without trying to wiggle out from, from under it. And we express that positively when we say to one another when they're struggling through a hard time, we say, hang in there. You don't quit. Keep, keep going. Again, that's the one thing that separates the immature Christian from the mature Christian because the immature Christian is going to try to avoid difficulties, try to avoid hardships, try to get out from under them. The experienced Christian, one who's been in the flame, in the fire, understands that that hardship is part of God's process of developing uh, a mature believer, that that's part of the process of God bringing glory to himself. And so the mature, experienced Christian is steady under fire. He does not quit his post. Now, the second thing he says is that suffering produces, it produces perseverance, and so perseverance then produces character. The Greek word is doikomas, and it means to be tried, tested for quality. Um, back in the olden days when they would strike a coin, they would take a known weight of a valuable metal, gold, silver, copper, etc. And they put it in a die and smack it. And almost never does the coin look centered. If you look at old Roman coins, it's always, always off-centered. Again, this is money that has intrinsic value, nothing like our money, which doesn't represent anything. But people would take a knife and they would carve off the outside edge of the coin and then they would use it. And then the next guy does the same thing. They're carving off the gold, silver, copper from the edge of the coin, which, by the way, is why our coins have ridges on the outside. So because they, at one time, actually had value. They were made out of silver and, and nickel and copper. And people would carve off the outside, but if it had ridges on it, you'd know right away somebody's been messing with you. So the point, the, the word here, doikamas, means to be tested for quality or tested for weight, to show itself to be genuine. Um, Ray Stedman tells a story about this nine-year-old boy he, in, in Sunday school. He was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the nine-year-old boy said, I want to be a retired missionary. <laughs> See, he didn't want to be a missionary. That's tough. He wanted to be a retired missionary, somebody that's already been through the trials of life, someone who's already faced the fires of life and had all that behind them and shown to be true. He lived through it. He experienced it. He persevered. It made character out of him. That's the, re that's the result of being under fire. 
Finally, Paul says that uh, the suffering produces um, steadfast, approved character, and that uh, creates, uh, in turn, hope. And now we've come full circle, haven't we? We started with hope, and we're coming right back to hope again. Hope is the assurance of something which we do not yet possess, but we are confident that we will one day possess it. So we look back at our sufferings, and we can rejoice because they produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces this steadfast hope. And all of this is evidence, Paul says, of the security we have in Christ Jesus, that we share in his sufferings, that we embrace them, and we let him use those suffering to work his purposes. Now, he's not saying that uh, all of this is going to give you an affection for God, or it's going to keep you from experiencing uh, disappointment or shame. Uh, what he, he's not, again, he's not talking here about uh, the love we have for God. What he's specifically talking about here is the love God has for us. He, the Holy Spirit affirms in us that God loves us. The Holy Spirit brings this confidence that we are loved by God. And that, that fuels our hope, that fuels our, our strength. Um, it, it gives us meaning when, we're, when we feel ashamed or beaten down or disappointed or suffering. We want to know how it's fair that we go through the unusual struggles that we go through. It gives us perseverance in the times of, of trials and, and frustrations to know not that you love God, but that God loves you. What great confidence. I remember one time, again, I was part of a charismatic church at the time, and I was kind of on this spirit quest. And I went off by myself for a good part of a week. I just wanted to hear from God. And I'm, I'm praying, you know, God, just tell me what you want me to know. And I, I, the only thing I, that came to me was this confidence that God was saying, I love you. And I, yeah, yeah, but tell me something, you know. Well, anyway, that was what he was telling me. I just want you to know that I love you. And I came back to my charismatic friends. I've just had this, this illumination from the Holy Spirit. God says he loves me. And they're going, <laughs> 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 whatever. That's the point that Paul wants to make here. It's not that you love God through all of this. It's the assurance God loves you. That's what he's saying in that last verse there. Now, there are some disturbing things that happen just this week in the news, and it is unsettling. The reality is there's always reason to, to be without peace. There's always reason to be disturbed by the news. It's constructed that way. But the good news, literally gospel, good news, is that no matter what, we have peace with God, which in turn produces the peace of God, which then gives us peace within. I'm okay with the world. God's in control. God is sovereign, and God loves me. He's already told me how this is going to end. I'd like to just close with the words of the North African Christian by the name of Augustine. He was a Berber. Um, he expressed these words more than a millennium and a half ago uh, when he wrote in his book, Confessions. He says, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. May we find peace resting in God. Let's pray.
Father God, we long to experience the peace of God, and we pass over the crucial, crucial element in that is that the peace of God only comes after we find peace with God. And thank you for ending the hostility between us and yourself through the blood of Jesus. Again, my prayer for this congregation is that we have a growing understanding of what a big God we serve and love and what an immense privilege to have access to your throne room and call you Father. May these truths ruminate in our heart this week for the glory of your name, for the effectiveness of our witness. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.